Have you ever gone almost immediately from the height of joy to the depths of anguish and despair? Perhaps everything that you had uh, been dreaming about and working towards seemed to be finally coming together and then it was snatched away, it was taken from you. Well, that's the sort of emotional swing that we have between Romans 8 and Romans 9. If you asked any group of Christians what their favourite chapter in the Bible was, Romans 8 would, would surely be the most popular answer. It ends with the, the great confidence of the last two verses. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we have hit the heights, not just of this letter, but one of the highest peaks of the Bible. And at this point, if we're familiar with Paul's other letters, we're probably thinking, well, our hearts have been warmed, we've been taken to the heights, now he's going to tell us how to live in light of all that. What motivation we now have to go out and live for Jesus in the world. That's the normal pattern of Paul's letters. Uh, and the shape of Paul's letters is very significant. He starts with what God has done for us. And only then does he tell us how we're meant to live in response. Uh, and so after the, these eight uh, chapters in Romans, speaking of our, our need of righteousness, of what Jesus has done, uh, what God has done in Christ to provide that righteousness for us, uh, we're expecting now the application. This is what God has done for you. Now, in light of that, go out and live like this. But Paul doesn't go there, at least not yet. He, he will get there in chapter 12. But first we have three chapters where he deals with the fact that the Jews have rejected the gospel. And that uh, takes him from the overflowing joy of chapter 8 to the great sorrow and unceasing anguish of the first sentence of chapter 9. Now, it's not as if Paul's circumstances have changed between chapters 8 and 9. It's not that he finishes chapter 8 and then he gets a knock on the door that comes with some bad news. But as he thinks of the fact that his own people are missing out on all of these great privileges that he's listed in chapter 8, he moves from great joy to deep sorrow. And it's probably no surprise that these three chapters are overlooked by many. Because who wants to dwell on unceasing anguish? We perhaps also struggle with these chapters because Paul's concern for the Jews is partly because he's a Jew himself. And we are not. 
maybe there's a, a Ukrainian in your street or in your school. I, imagine one day you come across them and they are just sitting there sobbing uh, and you ask them what's wrong uh, and they say well my country is being destroyed, my, my family back in Ukraine, they, they've just had their home destroyed uh, and they don't know where they're going to go. Uh, and you, you sympathise with them. Uh, perhaps you even uh, shed a tear uh, for them. But no matter how compassionate you are, no matter how deeply it affects you, it's not going to affect you as deeply as it affects them. And maybe we could feel a bit like that with these chapters. We're not Jews. And so it can all seem a little bit distant, a, a little bit remote. Paul is talking about his people according to the flesh and they're not our people. And so part of my task both today and over these next few weeks is to show you why these chapters are more relevant to you than you might initially think. And actually there will be a a test at the end as it were to see if we've understood those chapters rightly. Uh, For some, these are chapters to be avoided altogether or to be endlessly debated or when it comes to chapter 9, to to try and use it to to hit people over the heads to convince them of predestination. But if that's where we end up with these chapters, we've gone off course. Uh, So so this is what the test will look like. Uh, The test for whether we've understood these chapters rightly as God intends is that they will result in overflowing praise. Because that's how chapter 11 ends. Chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever so that's an introduction not simply to what we're looking at today but to these three chapters as a unit and today we're going to look at the first five verses of chapter nine under two headings and the first one which we'll spend a bit more time on is sincere sorrow sincere sorrow have you ever been about to say something but felt that people just might not believe you. Well, that seems to be Paul's concern in verse 1. Did you notice that before he says what he's about to say, he tells them in three different ways that he's not trying to deceive them, that he's genuine in what he's saying. First, he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. Then he says, I'm not lying. And finally, he says, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So he's speaking the truth in Christ. As he speaks, he does so as someone who is consciously aware of his union with Christ. And as someone who has been joined to Jesus Christ, to lie would be a contradiction. And he says that his conscience bears him witness in the Holy Spirit. Boys and girls, do you know what your conscience is? It is part of you that you can't see. You can, you can get a toddler to point to their nose or their knees or their eyes. You can say, where's your, where's your nose? Where's your knees? Where's your eyes? 
But you can't say, where's your conscience? But that doesn't mean that we don't have one. Our conscience is that part of us that tells us that something we are doing is wrong. And do you know, boys and girls, and bigger people too, that it is a terrible thing to ignore your conscience and to do something bad anyway. Why? Because it makes it easier to do that same bad thing again and it makes it easier to do things that are even worse. But our our consciences can also get things wrong. Sometimes people's consciences tell them it's okay to do something that's not okay. And it's maybe because their uh, mums and dads never told them that something was wrong and so they think it's okay to do it when it's not. But on the other hand, sometimes people's consciences tell them that it's not okay to do something which is actually fine, uh, which is actually good. Uh, Maybe because they've grown up being told that something isn't okay when it actually is. And so we need to know the Bible so that our consciences learn or or relearn what is right and wrong. Uh, Sometimes our consciences need to be taught And that's why Paul says that his conscience bears him witness in the Holy Spirit. It's not just his his conscience, but his conscience shaped by the Holy Spirit through God's word. But the question remains, why does Paul feel the need to stress three times that he's telling the truth? Clearly, there must be people who've been thinking or even saying that he doesn't actually care about the Jews. So why would they think that? Well, we can't say for sure, but it's not hard to think of some potential reasons. For a start, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, and someone might, might say, well, so you don't care about us Jews then? As well as that, Paul is going to say or imply, at least in verse 3, that the Jews are accursed. In other words, that they're going to hell unless they trust in Jesus. And maybe you've even had someone say to you, look, according to your religion, you think I'm going to hell, so why would you care about me? Paul is also going to describe them in verse 3 as his kinsmen according to the flesh. In other words, they're his physical family, but he now has a spiritual family as well. And, and that spiritual family is different from them. Maybe you've, you've known what it is to be part of a tight-knit family for years. Then you become a Christian, but, but others in your family don't. And, and you start prioritising church, even over doing things with them. Maybe you even now talk about your church family and they say, oh, are they your family now? So you don't care about us anymore? So those are uh, some reasons why people could have concluded that Paul doesn't actually care about the Jews. And the reasons why unbelievers around us might conclude that we don't actually care about them but Paul is saying here no in the strongest possible terms he's saying I still care deeply about my flesh and blood in fact I love the Jewish people so much that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish for them anguish to the extent that he says in verse 3 he could wish he would lose his own salvation 
if that meant they would be saved. Is that not an incredible thing to say? He would lose his own salvation. When he says, I I could wish, he he knows it's impossible. He knows at the end of chapter 8 that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. But even consider giving up your own salvation for others if that were possible. I don't know if I could say that about any group of people But Paul isn't the first leader of God's people to say it. Uh, We read earlier from Exodus 32 where Moses doesn't just say it, but he prays it. Moses prays, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They've made gods for themselves of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Think of the love you would have to have for a group of people to say that. But Paul says it about the Jewish people because he loves them and because he knows the seriousness of their condition. Paul knows that if his Jewish brothers and sisters continue unrepentant, they will be accursed and cut off from Christ. Think of an astronaut doing a spacewalk. They're they're up in the International Space Station and they go outside to fix something. Uh, They they put on their spacesuit, they go outside, but they are are tethered to that space station with a strong cord. So then if they lose their grip, they won't just float off into space. But if that cord gets cut, if it gets severed, there is no comeback. There is no rescuing them. They won't die right away, but they're effectively dead. Once their oxygen tank runs out, that's it. And that's what it is to be cut off from Christ. It's to have a a semblance of life for a very brief while, but to have certain death as your destiny. Those around us, those close to us, those who we love deeply but they don't love Jesus. Once that oxygen tank runs out, once they breathe for the last time on this earth, they will enter eternity cut off from Christ unless they repent. The word accursed is literally anathema. Uh, Accursed or anathema. Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 16. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. He uses it in Galatians 1. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And why does he use that language here? Because that will, that's what will happen to the Jews who don't believe in Jesus. That's what will happen to the Reformed Presbyterians who don't believe in Jesus. They will be anathema, accursed, cut off from Christ under his eternal judgment. And so when Paul says that he could wish that he was accursed for them, he's offering to take their place. Such is his love for them. And such also is his concern for the glory of God. We see this with both Moses and Paul. Moses' big concern, as we learn from Numbers 14, was that the surrounding nations would say that God wasn't able to bring the people into the land that he had promised them. 
Paul, as we'll see, has a similar concern. Uh, we'll see this uh, particularly uh, next week that, that the God who had, uh, or the people that God had given so many promises to would be cast off. In verse 6, he'll spell out what this will look like for many people. It would look like the word of God had failed. And for the Jewish people to be given so much by God, but not actually to make it to heaven, the thought of that is nearly too much for Paul to bear. And he says, if possible, he would give up his place in heaven for them. If one man could die and the nation be saved, he would do it. But of course, there's only one man who could do that. There is only one man who could be cut off, who could be accursed for the sake of his people. And that's not Paul, but the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if any Jews or any Protestants or anyone else are to be saved, they're going to have to trust in him. So a sincere sorrow. Do you feel something of that this morning? Chapter 16 tells us that Paul dictates the letter of Romans to a man called Tertius. And you can picture Paul at this point uh, here at the start of chapter 9 having to, to pause because of the emotion that he's feeling. He pauses to try and compose himself, to try and get himself together. And as Tertius looks up from his page to see why Paul has stopped speaking, he sees tears in the apostle's eyes. And one point of application before we leave this first point is are there tears in your eyes at times? Do you know anything of this type of sorrow for family members, friends, neighbours who aren't Christians? If not, is it because you don't really believe what will happen to them if they don't believe in Jesus? If they die as good, sincere, nice people but have never put their trust in Christ? Or if you don't shed a tear, is it because well, you do believe that in theory but, but it's mostly just theoretical? I must remind you today, there are only two options. To be in Christ, that's how Paul describes himself in verse 1, or to be cut off from Christ. To be in Christ, or to be cut off from Christ. Uh, To use Paul's description of his Jewish brothers. And as we'll see in our second point, if if all the Jews' privileges and uh, Bible knowledge couldn't save them, how could anyone else think they could be saved apart from Jesus? But before we go there, I want to finish this first point with a word of reassurance. If you do know something of the sorrow that Paul feels here, if you too have anguish over loved ones who are still outside of Christ, because this is a book that that knows where you're coming from. Many of God's people have stood where you stand and have wept where you weep. That won't necessarily lessen any of the anguish you feel, but it does remind you that you're not alone. And it makes the dilemma that these chapters address all the more real and all the more relevant. So firstly this morning, sincere sorrow. May God give us more of that for those who are lost. But secondly, finally and more briefly, squandered privileges, squandered privileges. 
Marcus Rashford was in the news in the past week. If you don't know who he is, he's a footballer who plays for Manchester United and England. He was hailed as a bit of a saint a few years ago for campaigning for free school meals for kids. But anyway, uh, if you go back about 10 days ago, Rashford was in Larne. It's not the sort of place that Premier League stars normally hang out. But he was there because he had a friend from his Man United youth days who had just signed for Larne FC. So uh, Rashford went over to see him in Larne and that was all fine. But then he went on a bit of a drinking spree in Belfast, which was reported in the press. He got back to Manchester late for training the next day and so he was left out of the team's next match. And people are getting concerned about Rashford because it's not the first time there have been similar incidents where he's been left out for turning up late or been pictured partying after his team have had a big defeat. And people are beginning to worry that he's wasting his talent. He has the potential to be world class, but sometimes he just doesn't look interested. So much potential, but will he do anything with it? Will people look back on his career in five years time and say he wasted it? He didn't live up to his potential. And there's a sense of that in verses 4 and 5 as Paul lists some of the privileges that the Jews have had. They're the Israelites. To them belong the adoption. Israel as a whole in the Old Testament are described as God's adopted son. Uh, that doesn't mean that they all had faith, but, but they're the one nation on earth that he had adopted. He says, out of Egypt I will call my son. Uh, the glory belonged to Israel. We, we read in the Old Testament about the glory of the Lord dwelling in Mount Sinai. The glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle and the temple. It was a sign of God's presence with them and showed that he dwelt among them. They also had the covenants. God's promises to his people in the days of Abraham, Moses and David that he would be their God and they would be his people. To them belonged the giving of the law. Uh, the other nations, because they also were God's image bearers, they had the remnants of God's law written on their hearts, uh, as everyone does by nature. But to Israel, God had spoken his law verbally. He'd spoken it uh, directly to the people. No other nation had experienced that. Israel had also the worship or service, the word is used twice in the book of Hebrews for what took place in the temple. And they also had the promises, most of which had been spoken by Jewish prophets to Jewish people. The Jews had all that, and then the promised Messiah had finally come, and they would rejected him. I think we struggle to feel just how shocking this would have been. That in the words of John 1, 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And there's some news stories that just send shockwaves right around the world. Uh, some news stories that you hear uh, and now even years later you, you will never forget where you were when you heard that news come through on the radio or whatever it was. And you, at the time you heard it, you just couldn't believe it was true. 
Uh, and this is one of the, the most shocking stories in world history that the Jewish Messiah would come and be rejected by the Jews. Now, it, it shouldn't have been shocking. It had been prophesied. Psalm 118, we'll sing it at the end. The, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Who is the stone? Jesus. Who are the builders? The Jews. So their rejection of their own Messiah had not only been prophesied, they'd literally been singing about it, but they still did it. They still rejected him. And so Jesus himself, after quoting that psalm, says, Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. So the Jews who have been given so much, by and large, uh, most of them had thrown it all away. Every single thing listed in verse 4 should have pointed them to Jesus and would only be finally fulfilled in him. They had the adoption. Israel as a nation was God's son, but they missed out on being personally adopted into his family as their sons and daughters. They'd had the displays of God's glory. Uh, The glory was a sign that God was with them and dwelt among them. But then uh, Emmanuel comes, God, with us. And they reject him. They had the the covenants. The promises that God would be their God and they would be his people. But that is only possible through Jesus. The one who would take the curses of the covenant on himself so that we might receive its blessings. They had the law given to them in such a way as to emphasize their inability to keep it and drive them to Jesus. Where there is no law, there is no sin. It doesn't mean that, that, that someone is only a sinner if they know what the law is, but it means that the law spells out, it, it marks out the white lines to show clearly what sin is. The Jews had that, the other nations didn't. And they had the temple worship, which pictured Jesus, but they trusted in the pictures rather than the reality. And they had the promises, the focus of which was the Messiah. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in him. They had all these things, but they'd missed the person they were pointing to. So who are they equivalent to the Jews today? Well, this is where the chapters come home to us. Yes, we, we can apply them today to, to devout Jews today who's, who still have the scriptures and, uh, of the Old Testament and have all these things but, but reject Jesus. Uh, but the big equivalent for us today is surely those who have Bibles, those who sit in churches, those who perhaps had Christian parents but who, who haven't been born again. Those who have all the privileges and all the advantages but aren't saved. So the big takeaway from these verses isn't simply about the Jews, whether uh, 2,000 years ago or today. It is absolutely tragic that they had all these advantages and cut themselves off from Christ, like an astronaut deliberately cutting the cord, trying to, uh, or the cord tying them to the space station. But what we need to realize is that people today are doing the exact same thing. Maybe you are, as you sit week by week and hear the gospel preached, and there are people around you whose lives have been transformed by this message, but are you still unchanged? 
Boys and girls, the Jews had so much, uh, and you have so much compared to other children in Stranraer. You have parents who love Jesus and who bring you to church and read the Bible to you. You get to meet Christians from different parts of the world. You get not just to hear this message, but see it lived out by people who really believe it. But none of that will do you any good if you don't actually trust in Jesus for yourself. Why? Because in verse 5, Jesus is God over all. In one sense, the Jews' greatest privilege was that Jesus was descended from them according to the flesh. These verses teach a Messiah who is fully human, who had a human descent that can be traced, but who is also God, the Christ who is God over all. It really is amazing that there are people who'll say that the Bible doesn't teach that Jesus is God. Well, here it is. Who is Jesus? Who is the Christ? According to the Bible, he is God over all, blessed forever. The Jews had all the privileges, <coughs> but they rejected Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. And the person today who trusts in their church involvement or good works to get them to heaven is doing the same thing. By trusting in all those things, they are rejecting Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. And if you reject the one who is blessed forever, the only outcome is that you will be cursed forever. If you reject the one who has been cursed in the place of sinners, you will have to bear that curse instead. If I go out into the street and throw an egg at someone, I might get in trouble. If I throw an egg at King Charles as I go somewhere he's passing by sometime, I will get in a lot more trouble. The more, a per the more important the person is, the worse it is to despise them and reject them. The worse it is to throw their offer of help back in their face. And the uniqueness of Jesus makes rejecting him all the more serious. It makes rejecting him the most serious thing in the universe. And it's important to realize that you can reject Jesus by living a bad life, by living a wild life, but you can also reject him by living a religious life. That's what Paul himself had once done. That's what many of the Jews of his day were doing. And that's what some people find in churches in Stranraer today are still doing. I have my church connection, I have my Bible, which I maybe rarely read, but I have it, I say my prayers, I don't need Jesus. It is to reject the one who is God over all, blessed forever. But I know that, that for many here today, that is not the case. And if Jesus does mean everything to you today, then one day your faith in him will be vindicated. Because one day he will be seen by all to be who he has always been. God over all, blessed forever. Amen and Amen. Well, let's praise the one who was rejected and is now exalted in the words of Psalm 118. Psalm 118, 12 through 16 on page 291. Uh, the gate of righteousness in verse 12 is not our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
In verse 13, it is the Lord's own gate. There is no other way to heaven. And in verse 14, Jesus is the stone who the builders rejected, but now made head cornerstone. And who is he? Verse 16, he is blessed. He is in fact God over all, blessed forever. So verses 12 through 16, we'll stand to sing praise.